Within this range, there would be differences, of course, and no one can suppose that all or most of the people we are referring to would fit into one specific classification. If I could venture a generalization about the battle being fought among people who call themselves evangelical, it would be this. At this moment, there are two prevailing views, roughly speaking, and most evangelicals would fall into one or the other of these two camps. The first is that of the believer in biblical inerrancy. The second comprises those who do not believe in biblical inerrancy, but who have some elements of inerrancy in their theological position. It is framed differently, depending upon which adherent you refer to, but the differences are more marginal than substantive. Among most evangelicals who object to inerrancy, there is a belief in the Bible as infallible in matters of faith and practice. Men like Daniel Fuller speak about revelational and non-revelational scripture. Revelational scripture for them includes those things that have to do with faith and practice. Non-revelational scripture has to do with all other matters. Others speak of scripture as the revelation of God set in a human context bearing evidences of fallible humanity, but with the message of God shining through the human errors. However stated, and however limited, the difference between the two views at present is that some of Scripture, but not all, comprises the revelation of God, and that portion of Scripture that does this can be trusted and is true and free from error. The errancy camp is divided and can be expected to be divided over questions that may or may not bear upon matters of faith. Does the belief or disbelief in a historical Adam and Eve have anything to do with the infallible rule of faith? Does the acceptance of Jonah as a novella rather than history, the non-mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch, the non-historical character of the first eleven chapters of Genesis, the theory of two Isaiahs, the late dating of Daniel, the non-Pauline authorship of books like Ephesians and the prison epistles, and the non-Petrine authorship of Second Peter relate to non-revelational matters, or do they involve the rule of faith? Who is to decide, and on what basis, what constitutes the material that is to be trusted and that which is not to be trusted? Does it make any difference whether one believes in the virgin birth of Christ and the physical resurrection of Christ from the dead? No one can escape these questions and answers must be provided to them by those who deny inerrancy. At least one other question must be decided also. Is the term evangelical broad enough in its meaning to include within it believers in inerrancy and believers in an inerrancy limited to matters of faith and practice? At this stage, no one is apt to argue that the refusal to accept inerrancy means that the person who does this is outside the Christian faith, that is, unsaved. Are all then who have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit entitled to be labeled evangelicals? The answer to the question depends on the definition given to evangelical. As some define it, there is room for both under that label. As others define it, there is not. The problem from my perspective becomes important for another reason. I am contending that once biblical inerrancy is scrapped, it leads inevitably to the denial of biblical truths that are inextricably connected with matters of faith and practice. History bears this out, as we shall see, and nowhere is there any example of a group that has proclaimed a belief in the truthfulness limited to those matters having to do with faith and practice 
where further defection has not occurred. It seems to me that those who believe in inerrancy are left with little choice except to stand for a definition of evangelical that includes in it the notion of biblical inerrancy. This is especially true if inerrancy is really a watershed that determines where one ends up. This need not be taken to mean that those who hold to a limited inerrancy are excluded from the household of faith, but it does mean that there is a real difference that should not be obscured, for the dangers inherent in the limited inerrancy viewpoint are too important to be overlooked. For me to so define evangelical may appear divisive, and it may seem to present a threat to the unity of faith. We are always confronted with the dilemma of having to choose between truth and unity. Where truth is not at stake and there is disunity, it is not only unfortunate, it is also wrong. But where unity must be foregone because of adherence to truth, it is a different matter. The absence of unity does not require anyone to isolate himself so that there can be no interchange or so that there is an end to discussion. If it is possible to dialogue with people of other faiths and of no faith, it surely must be possible to dialogue with those who profess some form of the Christian faith. Nor does it necessarily imply that those who believe in inerrancy must separate themselves from groups and denominations that fail to support the viewpoint. So long as the believer is not called upon to renounce his convictions at this point and has the freedom to propagate what he believes, he may find it within the will of God to have a ministry in such a group or denomination. In principle, there is no reason why an evangelical believer cannot accept a post on the faculty of the Harvard Divinity School, however distasteful some of its theological opinions might be, so long as he is not required to compromise his own convictions. Now we must go on to show what has happened to those denominations and groups that have abandoned inerrancy. This is the next step on the program. Page 141, Chapter 8 Deviations that follow when inerrancy is denied Before taking the next step, I remind the reader of what I have done so far. Three things should be mentioned. The first is that following the introduction in which the biblical doctrine of inerrancy was shown to be the centerpiece of evangelical difficulty today, I defined what is meant by inerrancy. Then came a detailed study of the evidences from history to show that the doctrine of biblical inerrancy has been normative since the days of the apostles. It was not until the last century and a half that the opponents of inerrancy, or whom we might call believers in errancy, have become a dominant force in Christianity. I alleged that the church in history paid scant attention to biblical inerrancy for a simple reason. It was not seriously challenged, since the New Testament was written any more than the inerrancy of the Old Testament was challenged before and during Jesus' day. In the United States, and this book deals mostly with this country, the real struggle was fought in three periods of recent history. The first real battle started in the 1880s, and the chief protagonists were Warfield, Hodge, Briggs, and Smith. The second battle was fought during the 1930s, and the name that stands above all others is that of G. Gresham Mason. The third battle is the one being fought right now. In today's Christian world, there are a substantial number of mission boards, 
denominations, and parachurch organizations that have been noted for their commitment to an inerrant Bible. Within these groups will be found those who currently challenge the doctrine of infallibility while remaining within the fellowship of groups committed to it. Thus, the third objective was to provide evidences to demonstrate that there is a rising opposition to biblical infallibility among evangelicals. It was not my purpose to do this at great length or in depth, although it would have been easy. There is enough documentation for anyone who wishes to take the time to look for it and to read it. All I hoped to do was alert the reader to the existence of the problem and to offer sufficient documentation to sustain the charge. No allegations have been made for which there is no hard evidence. I now go on to the next step. What happens when inerrancy is abandoned? The fourth step is to sketch what happens when biblical inerrancy is scrapped and errancy is accepted. It is my contention that once biblical infallibility is surrendered, it can lead to the most undesirable consequences. It will end in apostasy at last. It is my opinion that it is next to impossible to stop the process of theological deterioration once inerrancy is abandoned. I have said that it is a theological watershed just as the Continental Divide is the watershed for the United States and Canada. The water that flows on one side of the divide ends up in the Atlantic Ocean. The water that flows on the other side of the divide ends up in the Pacific Ocean. But once the water starts down one side or the other, it continues until it reaches its oceanic destination. Errancy and inerrancy constitute the two principles and which one a person chooses determines where he will end up. No matter how sincere a man may be and however carefully he guards against further theological concessions, they are inevitable once inerrancy is given up. Francis Schaeffer has told conferees at Labrie that the generation of those who first give up biblical inerrancy may have a warm evangelical background and real personal relationships with Jesus Christ so that they can live theologically on the basis of their limited inerrancy viewpoint. But what happens when the next generation tries to build on that foundation? I am saying that whether it takes five or fifty years, any denomination or parachurch group that forsakes inerrancy will end up shipwrecked. It is impossible to prevent the surrender of other important doctrinal teachings of the Word of God when inerrancy is gone. I am not saying that belief in inerrancy guarantees the continued pristine purity of churches or parachurch organizations or institutions, nor am I saying that belief in biblical infallibility will automatically prevent them from going astray, but I am saying that without a belief in inerrancy, any group is bound to go astray. With inerrancy, it may or may not defect, depending on how the group carries out the implications that are inherent in this belief. The Roman Catholic Church did not go astray because it surrendered a belief in inerrancy. We have seen that the Church indeed, until recently, always believed and taught the doctrine of inerrancy, but it did not follow through on the implications. The hearts of men are deceitful and wicked. Thus, it is always possible for anyone to deny in practice what he affirms in principle, even though principle and practice should go hand in hand. But when the principle is lost, there is no hope for true survival, for no one does in practice what he denies in principle. 
A belief in inerrancy makes possible the solid continuance of the group that holds it, whereas the surrender of this principle virtually guarantees that such a possibility does not exist. There is another question that must be faced, but whether there is an answer to it I do not now know. Is it possible for a denomination or a parachurch organization to recover a belief in inerrancy in principle and practice once it has been lost? Perhaps the reason why this question cannot be answered is the recency of the movement away from inerrancy in Christendom. Had churches and parachurch organizations defected from inerrancy seven or eight centuries ago, the passage of time would have given us evidences on which to draw some conclusions. But the flowering of disbelief in inerrancy has covered less than two centuries. Insufficient time has elapsed, therefore, to say flatly that recovery is either possible or impossible. In any event, the time has come for me to state the facts that support my contention that the surrender of inerrancy may produce further concessions and a more marked departure from belief in other basic doctrines of the Christian faith. The Unitarian Universalist Affection The Unitarian Universalist denomination is the grossest illustration of how far a group can depart from historic Christianity when the full trustworthiness of Scripture is discarded. The Unitarian defection in New England began early in the last century. The Unitarian denomination was formed from the Congregational Churches in New England. Basically, the schism occurred over Christology. The Congregational Churches that did not defect remained Trinitarian. The Unitarian Churches did not. The latter denied that Jesus Christ is God and they repudiated the person of the Holy Spirit as the third member of the Godhead. This defection resulted from a denial of the plain teachings of the Bible. In due season, it led to the denial of other cardinal doctrines of Christianity. The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead was denied. The vicarious blood atonement of Jesus and the virgin birth were no longer believed. Gradually, the denomination became humanistic. The Universalist denomination had an earlier history in New England. One of its chief beliefs was universal salvation, the notion that all men will be saved. When the Unitarian and Universalist denominations joined to form the Unitarian Universalist Association in 1961, the merger was one that brought together two church groups of similar beliefs, or should I say unbeliefs. Today the consequences of the denial of biblical infallibility are apparent to all. This denomination has gone beyond humanism into agnosticism and atheism. Everyone is free to believe anything he chooses or nothing at all. There is no basic doctrine of the Christian faith that is held by this denomination. It is thoroughly and completely apostate with no belief in either heaven or hell. For this organization, the Bible is truly irrelevant, the gospel an anachronism, and the worship of God a travesty. It is difficult to see how any denomination could go beyond the place where the Unitarian Universalist Association now stands. So renegade is the Unitarian Universalist denomination and so far outside the pale of anything that resembles Christianity that it is not even a member of the National Council of Churches. But what is strange is that numbers of these churches and clergymen are members of local council of churches in the major cities around the United States. 
it is easily understandable why evangelical councils of churches have come into being in many cities. Conscience could not permit them to remain as members of local church councils in which Unitarian Universalist churches also held membership. But what does that tell us about those churches that permit this to happen and do nothing about it at all? Does not this kind of stand represent a betrayal of Christian faith and a denial of biblical teaching that truth and error should not fellowship together? The 1967 poll of NCC delegates Newsweek magazine ran an article entitled The New Time Religion. In that article it said, Conservative critics frequently complain that the National Council of Churches is too liberal to represent mainstream American Protestantism. Are they right? Last week the NCC released a survey of 521 clergy and laymen who attended the Council's 1966 General Assembly in Miami Beach. Based on responses from 37% of the voting and alternate delegates, plus 298 consultants and accredited visitors at the assembly, the survey does indeed reveal a modest liberal stance. To be sure, nearly two-thirds firmly believe in God. This means that one-third do not, and more than half, 58%, confidently regard Jesus as divine. Thus, on at least two fundamental points, together with the 22% who temper their beliefs with only occasional doubts, the survey shows that NCC representatives are as traditional as most American churchgoers. But in other specific areas, NCC assemblymen seem to have jettisoned much of the old-time religion. Only one in four accepts biblical miracles, such as the virgin birth of Christ, as literally true. In fact, a third of the respondents believe such miracles can be explained by natural causes. The devil definitely does not exist for one in three, and only 15% believe that children are born into the world already guilty of sin, a doctrine basic to reformers Martin Luther and John Calvin. Finally, with something less than triumphant optimism, barely 62% look forward with complete certainty to a life after death. End of quote. Does not this survey provide convincing evidence of what happens once biblical inerrancy is scrapped. Since the people polled here come from the major denominations in the United States, it is safe to say that they are fairly representative of what is believed or disbelieved among the clergy, professors, and lay people of these groups. It is not unfair to allege that among denominations like Episcopal, United Methodist, United Presbyterian, United Church of Christ, the Lutheran Church in America, and the Presbyterian Church U.S., there is not a single theological seminary that takes a stand in favor of biblical infallibility. And there is not a single seminary where there are not faculty members who disavow one or more of the major teachings of the Christian faith. And what is true of denominational schools is true also of non-denominational schools, such as the Chicago Divinity School, Harvard Divinity School, Yale Divinity School, the Pacific School of Religion, and the Union Theological Seminary in New York. This is not to say that there are no faculty members in any of these schools who hold to an inerrant scripture, but the number when compared to those who do not is inconsequential. And the writings of the professors from these institutions demonstrate beyond question that multitudes have departed from the clear teachings of scripture. 
One need only recall names like Harvey Cox, Paul Tillich, Reinhold Niebuhr, Henry Pitney Van Dusen, Shirley Jackson Case, and Henry Cadbury to illustrate the fact that they have gone far beyond the mere rejection of biblical infallibility to a denial of major doctrines of Christianity. The Bishop Pike Case the case of the late Bishop James A. Pike highlights how the abandonment of inerrancy leads to the progressive departure from other biblical truths. In his book, If This Be Heresy, which it was, Bishop Pike includes statistics taken from a survey made by a survey research center at the University of California at Berkeley. These statistics indicate how many so-called Christians have defected from major biblical teachings. Pike says, Higher, but not impressively so, are the number of those believing in Jesus Christ as Savior as absolutely essential for salvation. Congregationalists, 38%. Methodists, 48%. Episcopalians, 48%. Disciples, 78%. United Presbyterians, 66%. Lutherans, 77%. American Baptists, 78%. Lutheran, Missouri Synod, 97%. Southern Baptists, 97%. Roman Catholics, 51%. Bishop Pike reported that the statistics for his own church showed that 61% of Episcopal laymen cannot affirm as historical the virgin birth, and 53% will not affirm the doctrine of soul salvation through Jesus. Bishop Pike was not hesitant about denying his belief in the doctrine of the Trinity, the virgin birth of Christ, and the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Of course, he denied biblical inerrancy. He was so blatant in his views as bishop that the Episcopal Church was forced to act in his case. The Roman Catholic magazine Triumph had this to say, The Episcopalians appointed an advisory committee on theological freedom and social responsibilities with instructions to study the theological situation faced by the Episcopal Church, and concretely to answer the question, What is heresy? How should the Church define, detect, and deal with it? The committee's verdict was that the word heresy should be abandoned. It too often conjures up a picture of a static fortress of propositional theology that requires to be and can be defended by appeal to the letter of a theological statement. It presumes to a measure of theological prejudgment, that is, a belief that the Bible is true and can prejudge doctrinal views, which is inappropriate to the mature Christian community. It too often implies a set of theological categories unconditioned by their historical and cultural period. In other words, such an approach refuses to use and apply the historical critical methodology that always ends up denigrating scripture. Triumph, speaking of this and the fact that 90 Episcopal priests in New York in a meeting at the Cathedral of St. John the Divine had stated that homosexuality is neither right nor wrong, said, These two incidents in the recent history of the Episcopal Church unavoidably raise the question whether the body is tending toward an official position of neutrality on matters of faith and morals, whether, that is, Episcopalians are capable of loving truth sufficiently to recognize its opposite. Does anyone need more evidence to show that the departure from biblical inerrancy in the Episcopal Church has led to further departure from basic biblical orthodoxy?
The Church of England. The Church of England has been noted for its 39 articles of religion, which have been the backbone of evangelicalism across the centuries. The Religious News Service reported the action taken by the 1968 Lambeth Conference in London. It said, "Assent to the 39 articles." The Church of England's code of doctrine is no longer to be required for clergy ordination. The decision was taken when the 460 bishops, not without some division, approved an amendment to a resolution moved by Bishop George Luxton of Huron, Canada. He called assent to the articles theological smog and double talk. Archbishop Michael Ramsey, titular head of the church. Said he was very glad that the conference had endorsed the valuable report drawn up by the commission, and that he himself took a rather more radical line than the report did. So the action of the Church of England also indicates how far one can stray from the Most Holy Faith once the doctrine of biblical inerrancy is forsaken. Lutherans in the United States. What has happened among Lutherans in America demonstrates how much they have slidden down the slippery slope to an ever-increasing departure from the faith of their fathers. The slide has occurred in concert with an increasing rejection of the Bible as inerrant. Dr. Raymond Serberg wrote an article in the Springfielder, a theological journal published by the faculty of the Concordia Seminary at Springfield, Illinois. In the article, Dr. Serberg reviewed the contents of the book. A study of generations, which was assembled by four specialists. The project was funded by the Lutheran Brotherhood, and the book was published by Augsburg. Serberg stated that this volume is based on over seven million pieces of data from 4,745 persons out of 316 congregations of the Lutheran Church in America, the American Lutheran Church, and the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. It gives a religious profile of six million confirmed Lutherans belonging to fifteen thousand congregations. The study seems assured of becoming a classic, according to Time magazine. Dr. George Elford, research director of the National Catholic Educational Association, claims that the book is the best piece of religious research ever done. Dr. James E. Ditz of Yale University wrote in the foreword. Lutherans can be assured that their portrait has been drawn here sensibly and responsibly by a skilled team. The first thorough denominational portrait has set high standards for others to follow. The results of the study show how far Lutherans have departed from their confidence in the Bible, a departure that flows from a disbelief in the truthfulness of the Scriptures. According to this book, about 33 percent of Lutherans do not believe in biblical miracles as described in the Bible, the creation of the world by fiat command, the deliverance of Israel by the miracle of the parting of the waters of the Red Sea, the miracles of Elisha and Elijah, the incarnation of God as man, the resurrection of Christ, the ascension and second return could all be involved. 82% of the members of LCMS believe the miracles the way they are said to have happened in the Bible, as compared with 69% in the ALC and 61% in the LCA. This, of course, indicates that the Missouri Synod people are definitely more committed to biblical reliability than its two sister denominations. 
three out of every ten Lutherans do not believe in a life after death. For these individuals, the grave is the end of man's existence. This also means no heaven and no hell. Seven out of ten Lutherans believe that all religions lead to the same God, while four out of ten agree that all religions are equally important to God. The devil is described in Holy Writ as the demonic personality who tempted Eve in Eden, that caused David to number the people, who tempted Jesus in the wilderness, and who is active tempting and seducing people to sin. According to the report, 75% of the members of the Missouri Synod believe in the devil's reality, while only 50% of the ALC and 33% of the LCA. Lutheran Christology has changed for the worse also. In his article on A Study of Generations, Serberg observes, Two of the ecumenical creeds of Christendom confess the virgin birth of Christ. Two gospel passages set forth the truth that Mary became pregnant because the Holy Spirit brought about this condition in her womb. According to the report, only 40% of Lutherans agree with the statement, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Historic Lutheranism has held to and confessed its belief in the deity of Christ, who is depicted in the New Testament as possessing the attributes of omniscience, omnipresence, and omnipotence. 56% of Lutherans reject Christ's omnipresence. According to John 1.3, Colossians 1.16, and Hebrews 1, verse 2, Christ is set forth as the creator of all things that exist. Yet 54% of Lutherans, who are supposed to draw their doctrines and beliefs solely from the Holy Scriptures, deny that Jesus Christ created everything. A vital part of Christian doctrine is the correct understanding of the nature and purpose of Christ's death. One of the statements to which responses were requested was, Jesus died for sinners. As a substitute, he suffered the just penalty due to us for sins in order to satisfy the wrath of God and to save guilty men from hell. Only 33% would strongly agree with this statement. Only 24% would assert about those people who deny the substitutionary death of Christ or disbelieve the Pauline statement about the nature of Christ's atoning death that they are not true Christians. 44% believe that salvation depends upon being sincere in whatever you do. And 33% contend that if I believe in God and do right, I will get to heaven. End of quote. The United Presbyterian Church Another instance of a large denomination that has moved further and further away from commitment to biblical infallibility is the United Presbyterian Church. The General Assembly of what was then the Presbyterian Church in the USA adopted the famous Five Points in 1910. By this adoption, the Church committed itself to the following beliefs in an official sense. Number one, the inspiration and inerrancy of the Holy Scriptures. Number two, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Three, the vicarious and substitutionary atonement of Jesus. Four, the bodily resurrection and subsequent ascension of the Lord Jesus. And five, the reality of the miracles of our Lord. In the 1920s, the denomination was faced with a revolt against this sort of teaching. 
The Auburn Affirmation was put together and signed in 1924 by clergymen who decried the necessity for anyone who wished to be ordained to the Presbyterian ministry having to assent to these five fundamentals. All of these are taught in Scripture, and all of them appear in the Westminster Confession of Faith. And every Presbyterian clergyman was required to assent to the system of doctrine contained in the confession, not to mention his assent to the belief that the Scriptures are wholly truthful. The Presbyterian Church took the fateful step when its General Assembly decided that it was no longer necessary for a prospective clergyman in the denomination to assent to these propositions. Thus, the denial of biblical infallibility opened the door wide to a denial of other basic doctrines of the faith and to further defection from the truth. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, no denomination stood more strongly for biblical inerrancy than the Presbyterian Church in the USA, and particularly Princeton Theological Seminary. B.B. Warfield and Charles Hodge were stalwarts in defense of that doctrine. The action of the General Assembly in 1910 was due to the sustaining influence of men like those, but this was all swept away. In the 1930s, J. Gresham Mason was suspended because of his refusal to disassociate himself from the Independent Board for Presbyterian Foreign Missions. He founded Westminster Theological Seminary, which was designed to stand in the tradition of Warfield and Hodge. The church became increasingly inclusivistic and was ready for the next step away from its heritage in the proposed confession of 1967 that was finally adopted by the denomination. The late Oswald T. Ellis, an old-fashioned evangelical, wrote about the proposed confession and its true meaning, a meaning that escaped even some of the most orthodox clergymen in the church. He mentioned the statement put forth by Dr. Edward A. Dowie, Jr., about the reasons why a new confession was considered necessary. Dr. Dowie said, Church theology should not reflect every ripple of history and every wind of doctrine, but it must respond when it crosses over a major watershed, such as the 18th century. It must be ready to respond again in the future to yet unknown, but certainly profound changes that lie ahead. Dr. Ellis, in his critique, observed, The obvious meaning of these words is that the Church must accept evolution, higher criticism, development in theology as essential elements of modern culture. It must recognize that in doing so, it is taking only the first step toward a changing creed for a changing world. It is in this light that the new confession should be regarded by the officers and members of the Presbyterian Church. Dr. Ellis, in his appraisal of the New Confession, gives examples of Old and New Testament views that do violence to the doctrine of biblical infallibility. At the conclusion, he observes, The above quotations, those referring to disavowals of what Scripture clearly affirms, are all taken from books published by the Westminster Press under the authority of the Board of Christian Education of the Presbyterian, now United Presbyterian Church in the USA. They have been cited for the purpose of illustrating the meaning and implications of the words of the proposed Confession of 1967. The Church, therefore, has an obligation to approach the Scriptures with literary and historical understanding, which means, according to Dr. Dowie, to restate and interpret it in terms of evolution, of higher criticism, and of development in theology. 
Such teachings as these are in conflict with the scriptures and with the doctrinal standards of our church. It is the manifest purpose of the proposed confession so to change our standards that such radical teachings will no longer be in conflict but in harmony with the standards of the church and be authorized and approved by them. In this way, the forces which make for change, radical change, in the doctrinal position of the church will be greatly strengthened and the authority and trustworthiness of the scriptures on which our present confession is wholly based be correspondingly weakened and undermined. Do we wish our faith to rest on the changing opinions of men or on the unchanging and infallible word of the living God? That is the issue which the Confession of 1967 sets before the Presbyterians of today. End of quote. The United Presbyterian Church of late years has failed to produce any high-caliber evangelists. Its overseas missionary force has shrunk by more than 50%. Its Sunday school enrollment and its membership statistics for the church at large have begun to decline. What vigor there is springs from the faithful remnant of evangelical believers who labor on despite the existence of what one of their historians, Lotusher, calls the broadening church, which is nothing more or less than an inclusivistic church that has in it all shades of theological opinions that are mutually contradictory. If the United Presbyterian Church were to lose its evangelical remnant, it is easy to predict that it would have a future similar to that of the Unitarian Universalist Association. At any rate, the rejection of biblical infallibility by the Church has produced a marked decline in the last half century. The United Church of Christ The United Church of Christ, a combination of the Congregational Christian Churches and the Evangelical and Reformed Churches, adopted a statement of faith when its General Synod met in Oberlin, Ohio, July 8, 1959. John M. Morris wrote his reaction to the confession in the Unitarian Register. He said, Although we properly distrust such creeds on principle, liberals will find the new statement more Unitarian than any theological pronouncement yet to come from an Orthodox denomination. To be sure, the Unitarianism is largely negative. The Trinity is not mentioned. Jesus is not called God or Savior, but he is called Lord. God is an infinite spirit who is Jesus' Father, but he is also the Father of all men. Jesus is called a man. The Bible is not mentioned. In short, aside from the Madison Avenue language of the thing, there is nothing to royal the liberal Christians and much to annoy the conservative Christians in the United Church. It might, in fact, have been adopted by any Unitarian Church of a century ago. If the statement does represent the current theology of the United Church, it makes one gesture of some of its members a little ridiculous. In view of the omission of the formula, God and Savior, why do they remain so arrogantly self-righteous in approving exclusion of Unitarian and Universalist churches from the various councils of churches for refusing to use those very words? End of quote. The situation in the United Church of Christ is such that nothing more than this is needed to show how far that denomination has moved away from biblical inerrancy and how diluted its theology has become over the years. When the Unitarians find themselves so much at home with their statement of belief, it should be no surprise to evangelical believers 
that when denominations adopt new statements of faith, they reflect the theological deterioration of the church and the movement away from basic Christian doctrines. In the words of the late William Culbertson, former president of the Moody Bible Institute, the root from which all heresy springs is a faulty view of the inspiration and the inerrancy of the Word of God. The United Methodist Church The United Methodist Church probably is far to the left in the theological spectrum as the United Church of Christ. This denomination does not have a single theological seminary that could be considered close to being evangelical. The Asbury Theological Seminary is an evangelical school, but it is not directly related to the denomination and is looked upon with suspicion by the denomination. The theological seminaries of the church have little use for Osbury. There is a small group of evangelicals who are emerging in this church, but they represent a remnant. One of the signs of the times in Methodism is how far to the left some of the seminaries have gone. The Atlanta Constitution on March 19, 1975, reported what was happening at the Chalder School of Theology, which is a part of Emory University. This is the institution that had Thomas Altzer on its faculty. Altzer was the atheist intimately connected with the Death of God School of Theology. The president of Emory defended him when questions were asked. Since then, Altzer has left and was last teaching at the State University of New York at Stony Brook. A Chadler student for a doctorate, the Reverend K. Richard Robinson, filed a complaint with the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare, charging violations of his civil rights and of his religious freedom. His story was graphic and enlightening. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. 
For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.